gotten down to uh, talking about, uh, we went through the, some of the preliminaries about immunity. And uh, the way we're going to approach it is uh, looking at uh, three lines, three levels at which your immune system works. Uh, they're often, in fact, almost always referred to as three lines of defense. Um, some books will lump the first two together and include the uh, barriers as uh, part of the innate immunity, um, but I think it's clearer if we do them as three separate uh, layers. And so we'll look at uh, uh, surface uh, barriers. Uh, that uh, Basically, the idea is uh, if you don't let anything in, then you don't have to, you know, have to worry about anything, okay? And we'll look and see how you, uh, your body is set up to uh, prevent entry by most microbes, but certainly not all. Uh, and then we'll look at innate. Uh, innate is a, uh, a standard response. It's the same response no matter what the, the pathogen is. Uh, it's an inherited response. It's genetically determined. Um, and uh, so we'll look at that. It's very old. Almost all animals have it. All the way, go all the way down to jellyfish. Jellyfish have an innate immune system because uh, all animals have the same problem. Uh, there's a whole legion of uh, microbes out there that look at you as a, a walking buffet. And so, uh, you know, not that they intend to harm you, but they sometimes do in the process. And then uh, we get to vertebrates. Uh, we have an adaptive immunity, and the adaptive immunity uh, is exactly that. It adapts its response to the specific pathogen. Okay, so the barriers are just trying to prevent anything from getting in. The innate level is a standard response to anything that, that penetrates through those barriers. And then we have a, a customized response, <clears throat> uh, which is something that uh, is found really only in vertebrates. Um, you don't find them in the lower animals. And it, actually, plants also have immunity, immune systems, uh, but not like this. All right, so <clears throat> uh, these are the, the surface level, uh, and we will go through them one at a time, but basically there are physical barriers to uh, just block things from getting in, um, which is basically your skin, as well as the, the linings of the epithelium that lines the digestive tract and everything. Basically the cells are very, junctions are very tight, <clears throat> and microbes can't find their way in through in, in between those cells. We'll look at that in a little more detail. Uh, and then we have mechanical level. Uh, this is primarily mucus, uh, which when you have an allergy, you have an excess amount of. Uh, that's part of your immune response. <clears throat> it's, uh, and of course, we also have tears, which wash the surface of the eye. Every time you blink, there's, there's our, our tears washing the surface of your eye and our antimicrobial. Uh, and of course, we have uh, uh, urination, which flushes the urethra every time you do that. Uh, and of course, uh, diarrhea can be a response to uh, abnormal organisms. And then lastly, we have some chemical barriers. Uh, and these uh, would be some of the secretions on the skin. The fact that your urine is a low pH, which is, although it does support growth, uh, pretty well once it's outside. And then we'll look at lysozymes and some of the other things. But we'll look at each of these in some detail. This is just kind of an overview. So in our surface barrier level, we have physical barriers, mechanical barriers, and then chemical barriers. All right, so here's the skin and, and some tears, okay. Um, the, uh, this, we won't go into detail, but the, this outer layer of your skin, the epidermis here, uh, the surface level of that, those cells are all actually dead. Uh, when you look at somebody, you are not seeing live cells for the most part. You're seeing almost all dead cells. Um, and that, it, therefore, they are not easily used as, as a place for microbes to live. But beside, And then they keep flaking off. Okay, you keep losing skin cells every day, all day, all night, everywhere you go, you're losing, you leave a, uh, uh, a uh, basically a uh, trail of epithelial cells. 
you know, watch some of the CSI things, that's one of the things they look for, epithelials, okay, that, that can be used to extract some DNA. Even though they're dead, there's still some DNA in them, and they can do that. So that's, that's your skin. The skin is meant to block things from getting in. But also in the diagram here, we have some, uh, besides the, the uh, dead, flaky, uh, relatively dry environment, we also have uh, sweat glands. Now this is one kind here. This is your typical sweat gland. And sweat is, besides water, which it's mostly, is also salty. It has salt in it. And so that leaves the surface of your skin when you sweat, which you do every day. Uh, it's, it's not optional. Uh, it's part of your body. You just don't notice it most of the time. Um, it uh, leaves a kind of salty environment, which is not very conducive to growth by most human pathogens, because human pathogens are adapted to growing inside of you. They're adapted to your normal body temperature, to the normal pH of your body fluids, and being in a, a relatively salty environment uh, inhibits them. Okay? Um, you also have sebaceous glands, Sebaceous glands are the ones around the hair follicles, and these secrete, secrete sebum, which is a uh, lipid material uh, that out onto the skin, which helps keep the skin flexible so that it doesn't tear easily. Because obviously, if you tear the skin, then obviously you now have a, a, a way for microbes to get in. Okay, uh, and so all of this occurs uh, on the, just the skin alone. Okay, now. In addition to that, on the skin, you have many different varieties of, of microbes that already live there. This is their normal location. They're adapted to your skin. Um, we call them resident microbes, or resident, uh, uh, yeah, resident microbes would be good for here. Um, and, and those residents, uh, they kind of take up a lot of the space. They use up nutrients. They, don't, they make it difficult for a new bacterium to get established because the neighborhood's already full, uh, and that makes it more difficult. So the skin makes a really nice barrier, and in fact, it, with the exception of just a few uh, pathogens, uh, microbes cannot penetrate through an unbroken skin. Uh, they cannot just go through your skin, okay? So uh, the, uh, the skin is obviously then a surface barrier, okay? It's like building a wall, okay, around something and you don't let things in. Now, along with that, we have tears, as we mentioned, and tears uh, contain, as do some of the secretions on your skin, a, uh, an enzyme called lysozyme. A lysozyme is, uh, will work on breaking down the cell walls of bacteria. And then they, if you can break down the cell wall, the bacterium will, will usually then die. Uh, and that's present in tears. It's also present in uh, the secretions on your skin. So it's a tough life being a pathogen, okay? I mean, and of course, pathogens are just doing what everything else out there does. You know, eat, survive, reproduce. That's, you know, what everybody's after here among, among living things. Um, so the tears uh, also uh, help then wash uh, all of that out, and of course, any extra fluid goes down in the corner of your nose or your eye down into your nose. Uh, now, the the uh, other kinds of surface things down in most much of your respiratory system, you have little cilia on the surface, and they keep pushing the mucus back out. So anything trapped in the mucus will be eliminated. For the most part, it goes up to your uh, to the uh, epiglottis, uh, the, you know, the larynx area, and you end up swallowing it. Unless you have a cold or you have allergies and then you have excess and then you may cough or whatever. Uh, uh, but normally you just swallow it and of course the stomach has a pH of about 1.5. It's very acidic. There are very few microbes that can survive in that kind of an acid environment. So we have quite a few ways of preventing microbes from really getting in and getting established. And that's, so that's, that's kind of the surface layer 
of, uh, of our uh, surface barriers, and those are our physical barriers. Okay, um, go back to this. So mucus is a considered in this a mechanical barrier. You know, you know what mucus is. It's slimy, sticky. Okay, and what that the whole point of that is that things in the air, particles, get stuck in it. And of course, if it's in your nose, you, it, it, if, it, if you have a, an allergy, it comes running out and you get rid of it. If it's down in the trachea, the little cilia push it up and out. Mucus uh, protects uh, every opening of the body because, okay, you're a living thing. Barriers are nice, but we got to get stuff in and out. And every one of those openings is a potential uh, vulnerable location for microbes to enter. Okay, we. And in micro, we refer to them as portals of entry. Okay? And everyone has mucous membranes that help prevent things from entering that portal, getting in. Okay? So they're kind of like, uh, you've got the wall, you have the gates, which are the portals, and then you have guards at all the gates, which is the mucous membranes, which prevent most things from getting through. All right, now... I already mentioned the sebum and the waxy coatings on the skin, low pH, gastric juices, uh, chemicals such as lysozyme. Okay, so all of this then is designed, or I should say designed, is functions to just simply not let anything get in and get established. Okay, and it works pretty well. Okay, we don't get, most people don't get sick very often. Okay, uh, and obviously your immune system works or you would not have survived to the age that you are. Okay, because uh, there are a lot of critters out there that, like I said, just look at you as a place for, to get their nutrition and, and uh, they can do damage. All right, so that's our, our barrier level, okay? Gotta have barriers, okay, and that's how that first level works. So again, the approach is don't let anything in, no problems. Okay. But inevitably, things do penetrate through that barrier. And then we have the innate immune response. So it's very fast, but it's, the, the real point here is that it's the same every time. Okay. It, it's, uh, it, it, doesn't, uh, it does not change based on the type of pathogen or you know, what might be entering. It's the exact same response every time. Um, so it's a fixed set of, of responses. Uh, as I said, invertebrates have this, because uh, all animals have this issue. In fact, you know, in fact, so do, so do plants. They have bacterial infections and things like that. And, you know, the bacteria are, are they're pretty equal opportunity group. They, they'll infect anything, uh, at least different members of them will. Okay, so if all you have is this, if a new pathogen shows up, you may be toast, okay? Uh, you may not survive that because your body would have no way of recognizing that there was anything different happening. This is just a standard response, okay? Something came through, throw this at it. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, if you're an invertebrate, you don't have any backup, okay? Now, uh, so let's take a look at that innate system, see what it Okay, so there are basically four parts of it that really uh, are, are involved. And the first one is uh, phagocytosis. In other words, you've got a whole bunch of white blood cells whose function is to find abnormal, or not just abnormal, but uh, find foreign materials, and then they engulf them, and then they break them down. Okay, I remember the last semester when you talked about cells, there was a little organelle called a lysosome filled with digestive enzymes. What these cells do is they engulf the bacterium into a little vacuole, and then they merge that with a lysosome, which contains digestive enzymes, and that breaks down the bacterium or the virus and gets rid of it. Okay. Um, so this works very well for microorganisms, and not just those. There, there may be other, other materials. Uh, you may have cell debris. You know, cells die every now and then. You, somebody has to clean that up and get rid of the cell debris. Um, they may engulf entire cells. 
we have a particular uh, macrophages are pretty good at that. Um, and at the same time, they release cytokines. Now, cytokines are chemical messages within the immune system uh, between the different types of cells, the different parts of the immune system. And so these, uh, these phagocytes will release those, and that helps to do several things. One, interferons are is a, actually released by cells that have been infected with a virus. Those cells are doomed. They will never, they will never survive that. Either the virus will kill them, or eventually your immune system will kill them to prevent the virus from reproducing inside. Now, that's part of the, the third level that does that. But they secrete interferons, which uh, go to the cells are surrounding them and cause those cells to make proteins that can block some viruses' uh, DNA from being used. So when, when that cell dies and viruses explode out of it, they go to infect the nearby cells, some of those cells will be able to resist that. Or at least they'll have some potential to do that. That's what interferons do. Interleukins are uh, chemical messages to other, other cells in the immune system. One of the things that may do is attract other phagocytes. So if phagocyte finds a, 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 you know, an area where there's lots of bacteria, it'll release chemicals that will draw other phagocytes to that location. Or if you, if you injure your skin, their chemicals are released, which we'll talk about in a little bit, that will attract white blood cells to that area. So the, the system communicates continually by chemical communication. And then there's a thing called complement that we'll, we're going to do a lot with. But these are proteins that are in your blood all the time. It's a series of about 20 of them. And they all have names that you don't need to know. C1 and C3 and C3A, and we don't need to get into all that, that kind of nomenclature. But when they're exposed, when an antigen uh, enters the body, now uh, they uh, will respond in many cases, and they will cause one of four things to happen. One, they may cause the cell to simply break open. There, as I said, there's 20 different complement molecules, and if they attach to it, one of them attaches to a bacterium on the surface, that will attract another one, and that will attract another one, and they will keep attracting more of these complement proteins, different numbered ones, and eventually they will make a little round structure on the surface of the cell and cause an opening in the cell wall, which means then the bacterium will lice and die. So that's one of the things complement can do. Another thing they can do is they can attach to pathogens so that they become relatively inactive. They coat them, and that makes them difficult for them to, to do what they need to do. Complement can also attract white blood cells. Its presence on a bacterium will attract white blood cells. And lastly, they're involved in an, an inflammatory response, which is another part of the innate system, but they can activate that inflammatory response. So this is a chemical level. These are proteins, they're not cells. They're always circulating in your blood. They're always there, all 20 of them. If they're part of that portion of your blood we would refer to as the, well, we, we have the formed elements, which are cells. Red blood cells make up most of them and then some white blood cells, and then this would be in the plasma, the liquid part of the blood, because they would be dissolved in the plasma. So complement is, a, is part of that innate response to the presence of, a, of an antigen. And we defined antigen, I think, in the first, the last time. An antigen is anything that your immune system responds to by making antibodies, which come in level three, but that's how the, you know, any substance that causes your body to make antibodies is called an antigen. It's just a, a generic definition. Normally, by definition, antigens are formed. Normally. Okay, so one of the things then that this can cause is a 
acute inflammation. Now, infl inflammation, there are two kinds of inflammation. There's acute, which is what we're looking at here. Rapid onset, doesn't last very long, goes away, it's done. It's done what it needed to do. Now, some people have chronic inflammation. Well, that would be people with arthritis, things like that, that they have inflammation on a, on a daily basis. That's a whole different level than what we're looking at here. Now, inflammation is triggered by two things. Okay, pathogens that have invaded or by tissue damage, and often those two go together. If you have tissue damage, you're probably going to have pathogens entering the room. That's just a given most of the time. Okay, now, when that occurs, and I'm gonna to go to a diagram here, and then we'll come back to this. So here's an example here. I guess this is supposed to be a splinter, okay? Okay, when it penetrates the skin, Bacteria that have been on the surface will be will be brought in, plus whatever is actually on the splinter, which could be anything. Right? Now, <clears throat> these damaged cells in here are going to release uh, chemicals, as will these mast cells that are in the, the connective tissue, and that is a uh, chemical called histamine. You've probably all heard of histamine, or if you haven't heard of histamine, you've heard of antihistamines. Okay. Okay. So, and what the histamine does is it causes the, the blood vessels, the capillaries, to dilate, increasing the blood flow to the area, which brings body factors and complement into the area, as well as facilitates white blood cells exiting into the area, and fluid come out. Fluid forms kind of a barrier to prevent these from moving this direction. We have a kind of a fluid gradient here. And then eventually the white blood cells will engulf all the bacteria. Uh, you have a, uh, and then this is a healing. You had a, a blood clot here and now you're in the process of healing. You get rid of all of the bacteria and the capillaries go back to normal. So what you're gonna see happening is the area, because of the extra blood flow to it, has a tendency to become reddened. If you've ever had a small infection on your skin, you've noticed, you've noticed how it's often reddened around the, the, the area. Um, it, uh, it swells, how much, depending on the size of the inflammatory response. We call that edema. Edema is the same as swelling, okay? Um, it'll feel warm to the touch because you have more blood flow to the area, and blood's coming from the core of the body and it's warmer. It, if it goes, gets large enough, it may cause pain. It may press on nerve endings in the skin, which would, may, might actually cause some pain. And if it's a large enough, it can actually uh, mess up with the normal functioning of that particular part of the body. Usually it's just local though. So acute inflammation, we're talking about local. Now, we always think of it, and because of the diagram doesn't help, as inflammation on the skin. But inflammation like this can occur anywhere in the body where there's tissue damage. Okay, so if you, uh, how many of you have ever sprained your ankle? Okay, so how big, how big did it swell up to when you first did that? Yeah, giant size, right? Okay. Inflammatory response is what really initiates that. Okay, uh, and that's a normal body response to tissue damage. I know, it's amazing, you can't, don't believe that your ankle can get that large, but it does. Your skin has a lot of ability to stretch uh, for that. Okay, so the cells uh, uh, that are involved are white blood cells, uh, and, and also the, the cells that have been damaged. And they release another chemical called prostaglandin. I'm not worried about that, we'll just stick with the, the basic histamine response. Okay. And this causes swelling. Now, localized, Acute, relatively transient, uh, acute uh, inflammation is really not a, a major problem most of the time. Okay. There are situations where it can be a much wider response and then it becomes more of a problem. And we'll talk about that later when we look at some of the, I'll call them errors, but disorders of the immune system. Okay, and a third thing, or another thing that's part of your innate immunity 
remember, all of these are innate immunity, is a fever. Okay? Um, now, generally speaking, um, we don't think of fe as a fever as a good thing. But actually, it's in a, something that your body does to improve its response. It can't get too high, and that's a problem, uh, and then that's something that needs to be done. But basically, when you have a, 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 there's a strong enough number of pathogens and a strong enough response, the hypothalamus, which controls your body temperature, will be reset to a higher temperature. So instead of 98.6 or whatever your body temperature actually is, because it varies from person to person, um, it'll be set to a higher level. Now, what this does uh, is it increases the rate of enzyme function, and the phagocytes become more active, speeds up your metabolism, and, and accelerates repair. In addition to that, the pathogen is going to have been adapted to your normal body temperature, because that's where it wants to live. As soon as you move that to a higher level, let's say to 101, um, the pathogen is out of its optimal temperature range. And that also helps to get control of the situation. Now, um, I think, I don't know how many of you have kids, but probably, probably not too many. But today, uh, it is very common for a pediatrician to tell, uh, you know, especially with the firstborn. You know, firstborn are made out of glass. Everybody knows that. You know, you treat them like, oh, they're going to break, they're going to break. No matter, you know, oh, my God, you know. And, you know, the, and moms will run to the doctor or call the doctor. He's got a temperature of 99.5. What should I do? And they're going to tell you nothing. The best thing to do if it's below about 101 is just to let, leave it alone. <coughs> let it do what it's supposed to do. Now, a few years ago, they would immediately prescribe something to bring that temperature down. But now people, the doctors are beginning to, you know, they're really beginning to realize the value of a lo lower fever. Now, if it gets high, then yeah, you got to do something. And of course, if you have second, third kids, then you don't call them nearly so often because, well, they don't damage that easily. They're kind of made out of rubber or whatever. You know, they really are not that delicate, um, even though they they seem like they should be. Um, it's amazing what what kids can survive. Okay, it's how it's how organisms continue to reproduce. If they really were that fragile, we would never manage to, to uh, successfully reproduce properly. All right, so this is all part of your innate response. So let's go back to the beginning of this. Phagocytosis, complement, acute inflammation, fever. Now, as I said, these are pre-programmed responses. And there's not, there's no, no, well, I shouldn't say intelligence, but there's no uh, ability to be flexible about these. Something penetrates the surface barriers, this is what you get. Okay? This is the initial response to it. More often than not, uh, this is quite sufficient. And it never goes beyond this point. But of course, some pathogens are maybe better than others. Perhaps you were weaker at that particular time, not getting enough sleep, whatever that is, um, you know, not eating well, and you make yourself more vulnerable to pathogens. And it may, this may not be a sufficient response. Okay, so when that happens, we move to the adaptive immune system. Okay, something only vertebrates have. Um, now, there are four things about the adaptive immune system uh, that are, there are four characteristics of it. First of all, it's very specific. Okay, specificity. Now, here we're going to be dealing with B and T cells or lymphocytes, a whole different group of cells we haven't really even talked about yet. Uh, they have receptors for only one specific antigen or even sometimes only a part of that antigen. So different B cells, different T cells have different receptors that are highly specific to certain antigens. Okay? They're only going to respond to that one antigen, nothing else. But you have hundreds of thousands of different cells that hopefully cover the range of things that might show up. Okay? 
but so they're highly specific. But at the same time, you need to be able to respond to any pathogen. And so diversity is important here. You gotta have lots of different antigen receptors, okay? Each cell or each type, each group of cells has only one of them, but if you have hundreds of thousands of different cells, you, they, you'll get a whole collection of different receptors so that they can respond to other, other things. Okay? Uh, I'm gonna go back up to the top now. It's really important that the immune system be able to recognize self from non-self. In other words, if we're gonna go kill stuff, we wanna make sure we're killing the right things. Because uh, as part of this system, you're gonna create cells whose sole function is to go out and kill other cells that are infected. We wanna make sure they're gonna, only gonna kill the right ones and not just go kill lots of other cells as well. Okay, they're kind of like hired assassins. After you've hired them and told them who to go get, they're gonna go get them. You better have given them the right target. Frequently, you can't call them back. Once they're on their way, there's nothing you can do about that. So, we have markers on our cells. Uh, MHC markers, and, and uh, these stand for uh, major histocompatibility, uh, um, and these are markers on all of your cells. There's actually two types of them. Some are found on, on all of your normal cells. Others are found only on lymphocytes. Uh, but basically, they help to identify cells as part of you and not somebody else. And there's multiple uh, genes that make up this, this type of thing. And so when they're wanting to do a transplant, you've probably seen shows where they're going to do a transplant and they're trying to find somebody with a tissue match and this is part of what they're looking at for a tissue match. There are multiple uh, markers here, and they're trying to find somebody that has the same set as you do. Well, generally speaking, the only person who has exactly the same set would be an identical twin. But if you can get really close, you can reduce the possibilities of rejection, which is what they're trying to do. Okay, so that's what they do when they're looking for a tissue match. All right, so that kind of identifies. And then lastly, it would be nice to be able to remember what we, you know, when we go through this whole process of identifying a pathogen, generating a response, it would be nice to be able to remember how we did that. So if that same pathogen comes around again, we're already prepared with a response. We don't have to get started from scratch. So all of these are functions of the adaptive immune system. It is highly specific, it is diverse, meaning lots of different specific responses. It normally identifies your cells as separate from non-self cells and doesn't harm your own tissues, except when it has to. And then uh, you, after you have a response, and we'll go through this step by step, you end up with memory cells. For instance, you may have a group of cells that make antibodies to, a, uh, uh, to the flu. Well, okay, so you're exposed to the flu. If you didn't get your flu shot, you get the flu. Um, you're probably gonna be exposed to that same flu strain again, if it's going around and lots of people have it. But you won't get it a second time because your body is prepped. So I know what that is, bam, kill. Uh, don't mess around. They may get a little bit of you know, day or two of not feeling so great, but your body will take care of that. That's memory. They're memory cells. Now they decline over time. They don't last forever, but uh, they do last for several years. Okay, so that's slow. Okay, that's all right. Doesn't matter. Um, we divide this response, this adaptive immune response, into two parts. The first part is called antibody-mediated, or it's also called humoral. That E shouldn't be there in humoral. This is a response, this is the part that makes antibodies, okay? That's all it does. And antibodies can be found only in the fluid parts of the body. They will be in the blood, the lymph, the fluid between cells. They cannot enter cells because they're too big. They're giant proteins. They cannot get inside of cells. So they're only in the fluid, the liquid parts of the body, but not inside of cells. 
Now, the word humoral is a kind of an old term. Um, medically, at one time, uh, this goes way back to Greek, early Roman times, it was thought that your health was determined by the appropriate balance of four, quote, humors, unquote. Okay, and those were blood, phlegm, uh, bile, black bile, and yellow bile. That's what they referred to them as. And if you were sick, it's because you were out of balance. Hence the whole idea of bleeding people to make them get better. Okay, uh, they used to do that routinely. They would bleed somebody, and since and it wasn't, you know, it could be overdone, certainly. But most people who go see a doctor, or in this case, that old barber pole, that was from the red on that's from bleeding, because that's who used to do that sort of thing. Uh, most people who go are going to get well anyway. Their immune system, you know, will take care of it. And so if they bleed you, you get well, everybody says, see, it works, you know, and then it just perpetuates itself. Uh, and those who died, well, they were just too far gone. I couldn't help them. You know. that's, that's how those kind of things get started. Okay? There's no causality between bleeding somebody and they're getting well. But if people who are bled, and many of them do get well, that's called a correlation. It doesn't mean one caused the other. It just means, oh, they both happened. And so, you know, that, that went on for a long time, into the 1800s, still bleeding people. That was a routine response. We don't do that anymore. Okay, but, uh, at any rate, that's why it's called humoral. All right, now, so B cells, these are B lymphocytes. Now, B lymphocytes, this is just kind of an overview right here. We're going to go through them step by step in a minute. Uh, they make antibodies. Okay, antibodies will look at their large proteins, and the proteins, the antibody proteins, have a receptor that exactly matches the receptor that was on the original B cell that produces them. So they can go and identify the same things the B cell can identify. Remember, specificity. B cell identifies a pathogen, it starts to divide and makes lots of copies of itself. We call that cloning, because they're all genetically identical. All, some of those will then differentiate and start making antibodies, millions of antibodies, and dumping them into the blood. Okay. Now, those antibodies all have a receptor on them. It's exactly the same as the one that was on the original B cell. So they all are specific to the same pathogen that the B cell recognized to begin with. Um, so it activated, it divides, you get a clonal population. And then some of those will become memory cells and just kind of hang out for the next several years in case the same thing shows up again. This is basically what goes on in, in this system. So here's a diagram of what goes on. B cells, like all blood cells, are produced in the bone marrow. All of your different kinds of blood cells are produced there. Red blood cells, uh, the uh, B lymphocytes and T lymphocytes, basophils, neutrophils, all of that, whole eosinophils, that whole range of different blood cells, platelets, all produced in the bone marrow. Okay? Now, B cells mature in the bone marrow. Okay? Then from there, they're going to migrate into the lymphatic tissues. Uh, this is primarily the spleen, <clears throat> the lymph nodes, tonsils if you still have them, uh, into those areas, okay? And a few of them will circulate in the blood, but for the most part, they're going to go to those lymphoid tissues. So the spleen, bone, uh, and primarily spleen and the uh, uh, lymph nodes, okay? Now, if you look at those, four, those uh, three cells that they, and that's all they're showing you here, You'll notice that they have little receptors on them, but they're all different shapes. Each the cell, each cell has a different shape. Okay? Now, when they get activated, when a particular, in this case, this one gets activated because it binds to a, uh, an antigen, it will start making many copies of itself, 
Some of those can become plasma cells and they may be on a short antibody. Millions and millions of copies of those antibodies will flood out into your system. These guys don't do anything because the pathogen didn't match their receptor. And then, oh, not my turn. I don't know what that is. Mine is doing And they just hang out waiting for theirs to show up. It'd be kind of like we took the that would take this whole class. We put you in a large room and we gave each of you a picture of a different person. We said, when you see that person, go grab them and bring them over here. Well, you have to sit there until the person you had a picture of showed up. Other, you know, one person may see theirs and grab them, take them over there, and you're just going to say, I don't know who that is, so I'll just sit here. You may spend your entire life and never see that person. Just because you have a receptor or you have the picture for that person doesn't mean they're actually ever going to really show up in that room. We don't know. They're just persons of interest, as it were. Well, that's how your immune system works. You have all these different kinds of B cells with different receptors on them. Many of them may never do anything, ever, depending on what you're exposed to. There's this idea that the immune system knows what it's doing. You know, they have this. Or, you know, we got this organized. We're going to make um, receptors for all the things we know are going to be a problem. It doesn't work that way. When the B cells are made and different receptors are put on them are, are made, what we do is we use part. We use several different genes. We use part of it from one gene, part from another gene, part from another gene, and then let those genes then mix up. They may actually move part of their DNA from one place to another. And we simply make millions of random receptors. We have no idea if any of them are any good. The, the way the immune system works is if we make enough of them, we'll have one that matches anything that shows up. But it's random. They don't know what they're doing. Nobody has a blueprint that says, yeah, I've got to make one of these, I've got to make one of those. They're just saying, we're going to make one of everything we can possibly make. And hopefully, we'll have one that matches any pathogen that shows up. Now, that seems like kind of a strange way of doing things, but humans have been around for some millions of years. And so your immune system is the product of those millions of years of taking a stab at it and getting it right. Because those who didn't get it right didn't survive and have kids. And their genes didn't get passed on. <clears throat> so you have a pretty finely tuned immune system because it's been tested for millions of years. The only time we have a real problem is when a, a brand new pathogen shows up, an emerging disease, which we may or may not have a receptor for. Okay. Let me give you an example. Um, when Europeans discovered the new world, which really wasn't any newer than the old world, it was just as old, but when they finally found it, People have been living here for thousands, millions of years already in the Americas. So we end up calling them. But they had no contact with Europeans at all, because there was no well, there was just no way to travel back then. They had different immune responses. And so the Spaniards and Portuguese and the English, the British, the Dutch came into the the Americas, and they had diseases that these people had never been exposed to ever in their entire lives. They had no immune response, or some of them didn't. Some did, a few did, others didn't. Why? Because they'd never been tested before against those diseases, which is what weeds out ones that aren't effective. And so they would get the measles and die. They didn't have an immune response to it. They didn't all die because some of them, just by random chance, had a response to measles, the measles virus. So it shouldn't be surprising. That's uh, most of you, again, not old enough probably to remember when the first moon landing occurred. Um, when those guys came back, they and their capsule were quarantined for two or three weeks. Because we didn't know what was coming back with them. Maybe there was some virus out there that we'd never been exposed to before. It would wipe out the human race. There have been science fiction books written on using that scenario. Uh, it just turned out, of course, there wasn't. 
but they'll go through the same process if we should actually ever get to Mars, uh, which probably won't be in my lifetime, but uh, you know, should we ever actually get there and come back, we're going to have to go, we have to think about that. And what do we take with us? Is there, you know, have we left anything on the moon, you know, that we don't know, you know, they try to make all these probes as sterile as possible, but it's pretty hard to do that. At any rate, so this is the B-cell response, okay? And so you make all the antibodies, and at some point, as the disease begins to wind down, the uh, plasma cells stop making antibodies. Some of the B-cells will kind of go off to the side and become memory cells. Say, all right, we got, we got our guy, but, well, we're going to set a few guys over here just in case he escapes and he comes back again. And we'll be ready for him. So that's how the, the humoral part works. Very effective, but only outside of cells. Therein lies a problem. But viruses reproduce where? What do they have to do to reproduce? Pardon? Yeah, they have to enter to penetrate a cell, take over that cell. Remember, viruses have absolutely no ability to replicate their DNA. They can't do anything by themselves. They have to go inside of a cell. Well, antibodies can't find them there, and they'll continue to reproduce. Some bacteria enter cells also. <clears throat> antibodies won't find those. So we have to have, then have a, another path to this. Okay. Now, before I get to that, here are the, what antibodies sort of look like. They're always Y-shaped. This is where the receptors are out here on the ends. This is, you know, antibody, this is free-floating. If this was the receptor on a B-cell, this part down here would be attached to the surface of the B-cell. Variable region here is going to be different on different different antibodies. Okay, and so this is another example. Uh, here's a lymph node. An antigen wanders into the lymph node. These are all B cells with different receptors, different shapes. This is the <coughs> one that matches. These guys just sit here and ignore it. But this one clones itself, begins to make antibodies, and then sets aside some. Eventually, you stop making the antibodies that you've been successful. This is a B cell uh, before it's been activated. This is what it looks like uh, as a plasma cell. Now, this is all rough endoplasmic reticulum. Remember what that was for. Rough endoplasmic reticulum was involved in making proteins. It was that endoplasmic reticulum with little ribosomes all dotted all over it, making lots of proteins. That's what this thing is doing. It's making antibodies, which are proteins. So it changes its internal structure to match what it has to do. Okay. We'll do this part and then do look at the other half. Here's one of the uh, that the, the reasons you often get sick the first time you're exposed to something. You may have an immune response and a very good immune response, but they don't put a, a time, they don't put any numbers on here. Uh, but this process from initial exposure to this peak right here, it, this is, takes about 10 days. And during that time, you're going to get sick with that, whatever that pathogen is. And then you'll get the response, you'll knock it down. And now you have memory cells. If you're ever exposed to that same one again, you get a very rapid response and a much stronger response. And that's the whole point behind vaccinations. To give you your primary response so that you now have memory cells available for the secondary response. Okay, so now we look at the cell-mediated part. These are, these are T lymphocytes, or T cells. You've all heard of T cells, because I'm sure you've had stuff about uh, HIV and, that, and uh, its interaction with T cells. Um, these are, will target, they do two things. 
One, they target infected body cells. Remember those ones that are infected, that are making new bacteria, making new viruses? It's going to target them and get rid of them. Okay? So that we don't keep making more viruses and more bacteria. All right, now, they'll secrete cytokines, which are, remember, chemical messengers. They will cause a proliferation of what are called uh, NK cells, uh, natural killer cells, which will also do that sort of thing. Uh, kill infected cells, and they will activate macrophages. They'll make them. More, they'll make more macrophages. They'll send them out through the system to find the cells and engulf things that are not supposed to be there. But that's not all they do. And because there's two kinds of T cells, this is what helper T cells do. Helper C cells have never killed anything in their lives directly. What they do is they activate other systems. They're kind of the the headquarters. When a T cell, it, a helper T cell is activated, it sends chemical messengers to natural killer cells, to macrophages. It also sends them to B cells. If the B cells haven't responded yet, it sends a message to the B cell with the same receptor it has. And it activates a type of cell called a, um, a killer T cell or uh, I'll just leave it at that for right now. So the helper T cells are what really drive the, make sure the, you get the entire response. And so here, uh, T cells are also produced in the bone marrow. They migrate to the thymus gland. And that's where they, excuse me, they, they're produced in the, there. They mature in the thymus gland. So by the time you're about two years old, you have produced all the different kinds of T cells you will ever have. Doesn't mean you can't make more T cells of the same type that you already have, but you'll have pretty well made all the different receptors that you're going to have. Okay. They go through that same random process of, of making receptors. Okay. And you produce a T cell here. Now, this is a helper T cell, or a CD4 cell. It will activate B cells if they haven't already been activated. And it will activate the killer T cells, which are called CD8 cells, so that they will attack the invading antigen inside the cell. In other words, they'll kill your own body cells that are infected. And so between this and that, have the entire body covered as far as responding to a pathogen. Okay, so here's a, an example. This uh, woman happens to be a cancer cell that has been detected as being abnormal. The cytotoxic T cell will uh, find the abnormal proteins. Okay, remember I mentioned MHC, major histocompatibility. Okay. These are like little platforms on the surface of your cells. And periodically, all cells, like daily, or all, all, all the time, take bits of proteins inside of them and cut them up into smaller pieces and display them for other cells to see. And in this case, this cancer cell is, still has enough going on of its normal function to do that. And a protein which is abnormal has been recognized. Killer T cell will latch onto that when it's, when it's displayed on the MHC here. It will make a chemical that will actually attach to this cell and cause it to die. Now, we have no idea how many times in our lives a potential cancer cell has been killed this way. There's no way of knowing. We only know when it didn't happen. Uh, it may happen to, well, maybe it happens hundreds of times in your lifetime. Again, there's no way of knowing. Okay, that's what it should do to an abnormal cell. Uh, okay, this is showing a T cell as it's attacking another cell. And so here's kind of a summary of the process.
with a couple of one extra thing thrown in. And these are called antigen-presenting cells. Okay, here's the problem. T helper T cells cannot attach directly to an antigen. It is not within their ability to do that. So they have to wait until an antigen-presenting cell, usually a macrophage or uh, a dendritic cell, comes and finds them and displaying this, pro this, this bits of protein from what they've engulfed and killed, and it matches their receptor. That will activate the helper T cell. They can't activate directly on an antigen. They have to wait for other cells to bring it to them. This is probably a good thing because your T cells and B cells are mostly in lymph nodes and the thymus. Initial approach of pathogens is usually in the periphery of the body. Well, macrophages are everywhere in the body. And so they engulf stuff. They, they, as they do that, they will display on their surface some of the proteins from what they engulfed. They'll go into a lymph node and they'll move around and show that, display that to all of the T cells and B cells that are there. Okay. If a particular uh, helper T cell matches that, helper T cell will send signals to cytotoxic T cells or killer T cells. It'll kill it. It'll produce memory T cells. And it will send chemical signals to the B cell that has the same receptor as it does, and it will make plasma cells, antibodies, and memory T cells. So these are your long-range long control guys, your macrophages. They're always out in the periphery of the body, finding things, bringing them back to the lymph node, displaying them, and saying, does anybody care about this? If nobody responds to it, okay, that's fine. Maybe all I have are bits of cell debris of my own cell. Well, that's fine. That could happen. Okay. Now, the only thing that is different between... Now, the only way... Let me back up. Helper T cells can only be activated by an antigen-presenting cell, like a macrophage. It cannot bind directly to a, an antigen normally, a free antigen. Cytotoxic T cells are, have to be activated by helper T cells. So unless the helper T cell is activated, the cytotoxic T cells will not be activated. Right, now, following this line over to the B cells, you'll notice that the B cell can be activated directly by an antigen. That's one of the differences. T cells cannot be. They have to have the cell come and display. B cells can be activated. sequence of the antigen. Now, so the whole point here is, it's, this is a very complicated system. Uh, and we have, you know, we learn new things about it probably almost every day. And textbooks are always behind. So immunity is really a, uh, a very complex technique. So remember the key role here, though, Helper T cells activate both. So if I do away with helper T cells, most of my immune system will be inactivated. I'll be able to function. And that's what HIV does. Over the long term, it lowers the number of helper T cells to the point that the body cannot respond to infection. So HIV never kills anybody directly. They all die of something. Because HIV has weakened the immune system to the point that their immune system can't respond anymore. And that's what happens when you don't have a, a valid immune system. You do not survive. Okay. Now, I mentioned immunizations earlier. Yeah, we can do this part and then we'll stop for today. Okay, um, basically, immunizations. Um, have been known, well, we don't know how long, really. Uh, we know that in the English-speaking world, it was in the 1800s that, I think it was 1800s, that Jenner discovered that, uh, he, what he noticed was that um, milkmaids, which was a profession at that time, because there were no milking machines, you know, cows had to be milked by hand, 
uh, so it was something mostly young women did. Um, they would get, because they were around the cows, they would get a disease called cowpox. Uh, it was not very, there was no particularly terrible disease. They usually recovered without any problem. But then he noticed that they ended up, after the cowpox, they would not get smallpox, which was a big problem. This may have been actually 1700s. But they wouldn't get smallpox. And he, what he started doing was taking some of the cowpox, he would take the scabs from the cowpox, and he would actually inoculate people with that. They would get cowpox, usually, but then they wouldn't die of smallpox, which was a, that was a plus. Now, we know that from some records that in uh, China and in the Arab world, when they were at their height, they were doing similar things. Okay. Both, both in the Arab, Arab world was far ahead of Europe at one time, uh, as was China. And then things obviously changed. But, um, so that was the principle of immunization. Now. There are a couple of kinds. Active immunization, okay. Active immunization means that your immune system generates memory cells. It goes through its whole routine. It generates plasma cells, which generate antibodies, and you get memory cells, and the cytotoxic T cells are activated, and they generate memory cells. That's what we mean by an active immunization. Now, that can happen one of two ways. One is, you might get the disease, in which case you'll go through that whole process and you'll make memory cells and assuming you survive that disease, you now are usually immune to it. Okay. Or we can, art we can uh, artificially make that happen by vaccination, which is what vaccinations do. We inject the antigen, either dead or weakened, depending on the type of vaccine, so that your body can have, can get ready for it if you ever actually run into it. It's been very successful. Uh, probably nobody knows anyone who ever got tetanus, probably, or uh, diphtheria, or whooping cough, or for that matter, with your generation, measles or chickenpox or mumps, because they're vaccinated for all those things. And they don't change significantly over the years. You do need occasional boosters for some things because your immune, immunity doesn't last forever. But that's what immunizations are for. Now, flu shots are different. Well, they're the same. But the problem is with those is that the flu virus changes every year. Different strains, different three-dimensional shapes. And so new flu vaccines are needed each year to keep up with what's, what's current. All right, that's active immunization because your immune system actively prepares itself. Okay. We also have a passive type of immunization. The most common one, mom passes antibodies through the placenta to the fetus. Or when nursing passes antibodies to the, to the uh, infant. Infants do not have strong immune systems when they're born. It takes them a few, you know, it takes them a while to really develop that. Now that's one way. Other way is uh, we can make the antibodies and inject them directly into you. Now they will only last for a while because your immune system will ultimately decide that those are foreign substances. But you'll get, you'll be able it'll protect you. This is what you do if you get uh, if you've been exposed to rabies. They'll give you an immunization for it, but they'll also give you antibodies to kill kill the, the virus right now. And there are other kinds. Have you ever had a gamma globulin shot? That's what that is. They're giving you antibodies, prepared antibodies. They try to ward off some an infection or something from happening. So the passive level, we can have uh, kind of a natural way of doing it, okay? Or we can artificially make it happen. Uh, if you get bitten by a poisonous snake and they give you an antitoxin. giving antibodies against the toxin that's in the snake venom. Or, I guess, any kind of poisonous thing. Here in Australia, you have box jellies, and they have purified antibodies for those. 
because you, if you get stung by box jellies, you will die unless you get the, usually within 24 hours if you don't get the antibiotic. Yeah, Australia's got a lot of dangerous poisonous stuff. I, I don't know why that is. It's, it's a dangerous place. And now on top of that, they got crocodiles that'll eat you. So I, I don't know. It doesn't sound all that great. But yeah, for some reason, they seem to have a super abundance of poisonous uh, critters of various kinds. Uh, and so that's why that's what immunizations are about. Now, there, as you probably know, there are people, and certainly people in the U.S., who believe that they shouldn't be given. Uh, and uh, they have all kinds of reasons, none of which have been verified uh, medically, but you know, beliefs are sometimes hard to change. Uh, some people believe it makes their child, child uh, uh, things like uh, autism, yeah, autistic. Uh, as far as we can tell, that's not the case. But if that's what you believe, then you're very reluctant to do vaccinations. And now the what was, I'm seeing, I get a, a daily uh, emails about d infectious diseases. And uh, this weekend, I got several about measles and mumps in the U.S. and whooping cough. Again, people who were not vaccinated. Well, that can happen. Okay, so we'll stop here. We'll finish the immune system on... Uh, Wednesday, and we'll talk about your take-home exam.